Many of us learned the hard way that there wasn't going to be some instruction manual out there that would tell us how to survive the transition from service member to civilian. Sure, we took a few classes before we were sent out the door, but how prepared were we really? And civilians? Sometimes they just don't know what to make of us or know how to help. That's why each episode on CruiseCast strives to take listeners on a journey through the full spectrum of trauma and tribulations plaguing many veterans. Join us as we cover tough topics to combat the veteran suicide epidemic and end stigma surrounding the veteran community just by sharing real stories about how others have found their place again after their service ended. At Cruise Corner, we believe no topic is off limits and that every veteran's story can become a page in all of our survival guides. Welcome back, everyone, to the Cruise Corner Podcast. As always, this is Lonnie. Today, I have the owner from Plants for Vets joining me, who is an Army veteran. And I know you also had, you had family in the Army, didn't you? You're a granddaughter, and you were also married to an OIF vet. Yeah. So, um, I am a granddaughter of a Vietnam veteran. Um, He was an E-9 in the Navy. And it wasn't until after I got out of the army and he saw me suffering with PTSD that he ever spoke about his experience. And myself and my grandma are the only ones he's ever spoken his experience with mm-hmm. over there. Yeah, my dad was a Vietnam vet. He was army also. So he's never talked about it really. Like, I yeah. just, it's just one of those things that kind of, era I think it's you and my I had grandparents that were in World War II and they, no one really says anything you just kind of no. find out from other yeah. people that might have been around them but mm-hmm. and uh, it's interesting because I never get military spouses because you're actually the first female vet to ever be on this podcast besides me wow so, <laughs> and so uh but it's cool that you were married to an OIF vet because I never get to hear, or at least other people don't get to hear the spouse's side to what it's like to sit back on a deployment when they're gone. And I know you had kids and stuff like that. I know that I've been the single mom, so I got out before I really had to deal with it, but that's tough stuff. Yeah. I think, I think what made it more tough is that I knew, you know, just because I was in the army, I like really knew what they were going through. And um, they actually went, he was the striker unit. So they went in 03 before it was declared war officially. Um, So we didn't hear, we didn't get a lot of news about it because it wasn't, you know, declared an official war yet. Um, But the most upsetting moment, I think, was he finally got to get the satellite phone and call me and um, he was baby talking with our baby at the time, she was a baby. And um, I could hear bombs going off in the back. And um, then you heard the alarm go off and then just disconnection. No, I love you, no, be safe, nothing. And it was about two weeks before we heard from the command you know, who was lost and who was still there. Yeah, when I I deployed to Afghanistan, I think it was mid-2012, and I was married to an OIF vet at the time, and uh, it's tough to stay connected in a combat zone, especially during combo blackout, because Mm -hmm. uh, 
I mean, I dealt with the side. Most people, it's like, yes, yeah, spouses that are back home freaking out. The FRG only knows so much information. Right. I don't know if my spouse gave as much of a shit as I, <laughs> as I would have liked for him to. So there was kind of that, I had the side of not really having someone supportive to talk to. But I saw yeah. other people that had children back home uh, that you don't, you want to tell them more, but you can't. Uh, mm -hmm. It's either that you don't have the connection or, you know, OPSEC, you can't say anything about it. Right. And it's stressful. And I remember yeah. talking to my mom and just being like, things are good, you know, and we're just finding out a couple of days before that someone had been killed. And it's just kind of like, you just play it like, things are okay. We're great. Cause you don't want to freak anybody out. Right. And so it's hard because you have to learn to kind of uh, compartmentalize things like emotions, stuff like that. Like kind of just put it to, to the side and just be like, okay we're good, you know. Okay. Definitely was a up. struggle. Um, his, his mom is from the South and, um, she called me every single day and you're right. It's really hard to just get through a conversation knowing that you have inside information because I was in the service. So I understand what's going on. Yeah. Um, and I was hearing things through chain of, you know, through my chain of command as well. So it was really hard. Um, the striker unit actually, um, a couple strikers flipped over in the Tiger River. Um, they were the first casualties, I believe. I believe they were the first casualties. And um, my husband, my ex-husband dealt with listening to their screams for years afterwards. Um, so my children, they could not scream if they screamed loudly and play or whatever it, it would trigger him. Mm -hmm. Um, so not being able to share that with his mom probably was the hardest part as far as being involved with family, because I knew that we had lost people, but like you said, because of confidentiality and everything, you just can't divulge that information until the news releases it. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely, it's difficult. And I know, uh, I know you're really big with like the PTSD awareness and stuff like that, doing like the fuck PTSD campaign and all that. Yes. And so, yeah. and I think that's a big thing because I found coming back, I had to leave the military. I didn't have issues with PTSD when I left the military. I had friends that dealt with it when they got out, they realized they had it once they were kind of by themselves. Uh, things started to kind of click, but it's hard to teach people about kind of not just the awareness, but gaining the understanding of what people need, because a lot of people want to help. And sometimes there isn't anything you can do. Mm -hmm. uh, you, it all kind of depends on the person. And so I'm glad more people are sharing the PTSD stories because it varies in the severity of it and how people deal with it it's just kind of across the board and so it's hard to just give like this one explanation of like this is what you can do other than like read up on it show some patience keep loving them keep supporting them but uh it's it's a difficult thing to explain to people like triggers and stuff like that especially children oh, it apps you know what um so i found to be honest with you that being able to explain to the children, not just my children, but children of other veterans, um, triggers, they actually understand it a little bit easier because they get frightened. You know, you compare it to like 
say somebody's afraid of spiders. You ask the kid what they're afraid of, you know what I mean? The boogeyman, the whatever. And yeah. then you give them that analogy and they get it. They're like, oh my gosh, I understand. Daddy was really scared. You know, daddy's going to go mm -hmm. through this. And, you know, and so of course, depending on the child, some of them want to be comforted by their mother or father. And some of them just want to scream, you know what I mean? So I think that um, children, they're awesome. They kind of they get it more than adults. Adults, they want to wrap their mind around their own problems, you know? Oh, I went through this and I got through it. So what's your problem? You yeah, know? fuck up, kind of just get over it. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, I, the worst is when like somebody says, oh, well, I've been raped too. So I didn't deal with it the way you're dealing with it. Okay, that's great. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to tell you. We all, we all deal with things differently. And I think just allowing family members to know that, you know, it's okay to just call and say, I love you and hang up. You don't have to have a full conversation. You don't have to ask, how are you doing? Because sometimes that question enough is a trigger for some of us. Yeah, for my friends, it's always been more about just helping them realize, like, you're never alone. I'm here if you need me. I'm not going to ask you what you need. I know you'll let me know when it gets mm -hmm. to that point. And my daughter, she's three. And so uh, the PTSD I struggle with is from domestic violence, which is why I say it happened after the service. And uh, it's hard to explain to a small kid that they're one of your triggers and how there's times where like when you feel touched out and stuff like that when they get in your face or something uh that's always hard for me and it's hard to see how they react because sometimes like for as young as she is it's like i want you to understand that mommy's not mad at you like right this, you know this isn't your fault and i you know i'm just kind of waiting for the day where i can explain it a little bit to her because right now she's kind of like still kind of making the baby noises and can say like a few things, but uh, she can definitely sense it. She can pick up on the energy for it. And I definitely. know she, she reads the anxiety enough to where I've definitely, I've been that person that sat in the corner of like my kitchen to cry and had my kid come up and wipe my tears. And she has no idea what it is, but kids are some of the most forgiving people you will oh, ever, ever come across. And They're just big love bugs and they hate to see us hurt. Yeah, so it's a, it's a tough thing to deal with. But like I said, I'm glad more people are talking about it. And there's a lot of books out there for, to explain what vets are dealing with coming back, kind of how it goes a lot deeper than some people realize. Like it's soul damage almost. Like you're cut deep when it comes to PTSD. It's not just, you know, something bad happened and I won't let it go. It's right. so much more than that. And you know, the thing that I noticed with my husband is it wasn't his personal experiences that gave him the PTSD. Um, it wasn't any of the danger that he was in. You mm -hmm. know, it was, like I said, it was listening to those screams of his men, because he was the NCO, of listening to his men scream, knowing that they couldn't do anything to help them, you know, um, and to try to explain that to anybody they're just like I don't know I think you have to go through it I think you have to have been there kind of and been in a hectic situation not necessarily war but you know like our first responders deal with it too and um it's just it's hard his mom still to this day doesn't understand you know why he can't go to big family reunions 
he wants to, he goes, but when everybody starts getting loud, you know, it's, it's time to kind of taper off and it's, uh, it's been a struggle. I mean, we're, we're very good friends. Um, unfortunately, PTSD um, was probably the major cause for our divorce. And it was not just his, it was mine as well. Um, and we just, we needed time for each other to heal on our own. Yeah. Um, so I was, uh, our daughter was, let's see, she was born in July and he, and he deployed in November. So, um, and then I helped raise his daughter who was, who was six at the time. And then I had, um, my three-year-old. So I didn't have time to cry and worry about, is he okay? I, I, I didn't really have the time, you know, even yeah. when his mom would call me and be worried, I'm taking care of these three little kids, you know. Um, yeah, you had a mission of your own back home to take care Exactly. Of. And, you know, you, you mentioned the FRG, the Family Readiness Group. Um, I went to one meeting <laughs> and I couldn't do it because they were all just spouses. And I love that they were naive. I do. I, I had prayed so many nights that I was as naive as they were. Yeah. Um, I think it would, I think it might've been easier. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I could only go to one of those meetings because then you get all the spouses that want to ask you tons of questions because they know you were in the surface and it's like, ah, <laughs> yeah. this is overwhelming. <laughs> I'm going to stick to my three kids and their questions. <laughs> Hell, I barely made the FRGs when I was the soldier. <laughs> like when I was the sponsor, I tried to not go. But that was, uh, I think, had a lot to do with being a female soldier because I think the hardest part about being a female in the military was I got along with the guys for the most part and they accepted me. I was attached to a cavalry unit, so there was a lot of guys. But yeah. it was the spouses that made it difficult because it was mm -hmm. almost like you weren't allowed to create a bond with their husbands or their boyfriends because they automatically went to, well, you're probably messing around with him on deployment or out in the Absolutely. field. And it's like, no, this is just my battle buddy. Like, I'm just here to make sure they, if they need me, I'm here. I'm here to carry what weight they can't and vice versa. But Absolutely. it's tough at those FRGs because they kind of size you up sometimes. It's like, they oh, do. you're the one that's living with him when he's not home. And it's just like, right. Yeah, but, I mean, we're dirty as all hell out there. Nobody wants to really, <laughs> like, you know, when I'm at NTC, that's the last thing on my mind, you know, exactly. I just want a damn shower. But, uh, <laughs> and so, I mean, there is for them, you know, ignorance is bliss or whatever, mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, not knowing what's going on over there. But I think a lot of them, uh, I've met some great spouses, but I know when I was in, it was tough to feel like you were allowed to be a part of the team because you had somebody on the corner that was like not rooting for you at all. <laughs> so you definitely get to Yeah. Know. You know, that's so true because we would have, what are those things? Um, what we do, like those company picnics or whatever, you know, for Man morale. And, yeah. <laughs> that wasn't so fun. It was, it seemed like the guys always had a blast, right? But I mean, um, let's just be real. I don't look like a piece of crap, you know, um, lesbian person that they <laughs> would have no conflict with, you know? Yeah. Um, they see that I'm straight and that I'm a decent looking human being. So it automatically causes ripples 
like you said, between the spouses and myself. And so those days were not fun. I remember um, having the commander's wife saying, because I was the cook and I obviously worked close with the commander and first sergeant and just saying, you know, I, I hope you stay in your own tent. And I didn't Being even know how to, woman. <laughs> right. I didn't even know how to respond to that because if anybody's been in the military, they know we, we don't have separate tents. They don't, I mean, I didn't, I was in a predominantly male unit, um, ADA and they didn't give me my separate tent. They gave me a little tarp area, you know, where my cot was so I can change on my own. Um, they gave me like my five minutes in the shower time without any of them in there, but you don't, you don't get your own personal space. So, um, I never wanted to make the spouses feel uncomfortable. Like, Oh yeah, I'm sleeping in the same tent as your husband. But uh, because to me, it wasn't a big deal. As a matter of fact, I would have preferred not to be in that tent, but you know, it is what it is. And, um, I think that they just don't get it. Like, Obviously, there's some horny people that do some crazy things on deployments. Yeah. Uh, I personally wasn't one of them. It was the last thing I was thinking of. I felt so dirty and disgusting. And I was too stressed the hell out to give a damn about. (laughs) (laughs) You sweat from places you didn't know you could sweat from. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I wasn't, I definitely was not looking at any guy like they were hot and sexy. That's for sure. Yeah. I know for when I was in, we they would try to separate us even like when we went to NTC or JRTC when you were in like the loading area getting ready to go out to the box they usually kept you separate by by 2011 2012 there were a lot of females so they had enough females to pack a tent but okay. uh, what I always found funny was when spouses would be like you know I hope it's separate it's like I hope you realize the closer we work together the less we look at each other like ooh you know like it's the distance <laughs> that's gonna cause the issues because when you go to NTC and you guys are like separated and this is stuff, then it's like when you finally come out, they're like, oh my God, thank God, a female. Like, cause they've been staring right. at each other. But it's like when we've got out to the box, we shared a tent and you treat each other all the same. Like, it's yeah, just like, I am burned out on seeing you. You're the, I, you know, I don't want to talk to anybody. You want right. space. It's like, Jesus Christ, can I just get some privacy? And so people mm-hmm. look at it like, oh, this, you know, using this time for a sleepover. It's like, no, like I've, <laughs> I'm on guard 24 hours a day. Like, I don't give a shit about where he's at in the tent. There's plenty else going on. And so Absolutely. I always tried to tell the spouses, like, we're not as into each other as you think. Like, we're battle buddies. We're sure, people screw it up. There's the person yeah. that will screw that up. But for the most part, people are there to do their job. People are just trying to do the damn duty. <laughs> Absolutely. They're just trying to make it through, whether it's a field exercise or a deployment. You're just trying to get through it and get in that hot shower and your nice bed. You're not really, I mean, like you said, there's always, there's always those one or two that uh, want to take off into the woods or something. <laughs> <laughs> but um, for the most part, it isn't like that. And you're absolutely right. I agree with you as far as when they would keep us separated, you know, even in basic training, I, I know yours was probably a lot different, but I went in in 97. So if you as a female looked towards the male for longer than 30 seconds, you were highly disciplined and vice versa. Um, But that just caused 
more curiosity, right? Yep. Because you're young, you're dumb, and you're getting yelled at all day long. And so um, mostly you're not going to get along with the people that you're bunking with because you see their ugly faces all day <laughs> long. Yeah. So whether it's a female or a male from another unit, you want to talk to somebody outside your unit, you know what I mean? Because it's somebody that you're not seeing every single day. It's somebody that didn't just piss you off in that last rucksack march, you know? Um, so I, I, think, I think inclusion actually helps so much more when we're all inclusive. Um, I know that it brought morale up for myself and for the other two females that were with me when you know the males got together at night for spades or dominoes when they included us in that you know it just made life better the next day we, we all got along the next day during work versus um you know maybe one of the guys got a phone call from their wife like you better stay away from that that <laughs> that private out there you know what i mean and then we feel that as 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 humans you feel that isolation and then it makes, you know, it makes working that next day together a little bit more difficult. I think it's important even now as veterans for us to be each other's battle buddies and to have that connection that you're not going to have with just anybody else. You know, it's a shared experience. Yeah, I think a lot of especially military spouses don't realize that a lot of times female vets just want to have that camaraderie like everybody else. We just Absolutely. want to be included and I really struggled with it when I got out of the military and I tried to keep in contact with those guys that were like brothers to me and their spouses always made a big deal of it. Like, why is she calling? Yes. Why do you guys talk? You know, mm -hmm. are you laughing? You know, and we're just reminiscing about deployment or something. Right. And then they're, you know, you find out later on, like they're not allowed to talk to you. You get deleted from stuff and you get cut Locked. off and, yeah. and, uh, and I found myself completely alone. And it was in that isolation where I felt like, okay, like one of my buddies had just committed suicide. And it was just like, is that how I need to go? Cause it's like, there's nothing here for me anymore. And I don't know who to talk to. I don't know if there's anyone to open up to cause I'm going to get in trouble or I'm going to get somebody mm -hmm. else in trouble if I say something. And if I, you know, have a breakdown at night and I need to call, you know, phone a friend, and then people are going to be like, why are you talking to her mm -hmm. at midnight? And it's like, well, this is when she decided to have the breakdown. You know, it's not anything sketchy or, you know, whatever. Right. It's just that, you know, you just want to be there for people or have them be there for you. And sometimes you're Absolutely. used against you in that. And yeah, I've, I've had that um, same experience and, and you're right. It, it does get very lonely. You know, um, some of my greatest friends in the world, I can't talk to on a regular basis, um, you know, because in their wife's mind and their family's mind, it's only appropriate to say Merry Christmas and Happy Thanksgiving, you know. Um, I, even, I even had one spouse that didn't like that I knew his birthday. We deployed together. We spent you know every a lot single day. Yes. <laughs> Believe me, I don't want to know his birthday. <laughs> It's just something ingrained into my mind. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, it, it does get lonely as a female. And to be honest, you know, you're, you're actually one of very few female veterans that, um, that I've actually been able to open up with and just talk to outside of this podcast, because 
it's like, instead of coming together, females want to always point the finger like, well, you didn't go through what I went through. You know, you weren't in when I was in, you didn't go on as many deployments or, you know, you were in the safe part of Iraq as if there is a such thing. There's a lot of competing. There's not a lot of teamwork on it. I mean, I noticed it when I was in, that's why I bonded more with the guys because uh, the females were kind of, it felt very high school like, and there were the cliques and you were either accepted or not, whether they knew you or not. And I mean, I had issues with MST from the get-go. I was getting all kinds of harassment and things happened as soon as I got to my post because I was naive. I was young. I accepted help I shouldn't have and got myself into a situation that I couldn't get out of. And instead of them being like, we got you, you know, you're our battle, you're our peer. It was like, we're going to spread rumors. We're going to turn yes. the physical pain you're going through into a psychological game. Nightmare. And, and start, you know, I had people sharing my room number all over the place. Like, she's easy. Go get her, you know, go just knock on the door and stuff like that. And I was having all these people just harass me. And mm-hmm. it was really tough. And I, I was really like gung-ho when I joined, like coming out of AIT. It was like, I'm going to be the best there is. I had all these plans. Yeah. Like, I'm going to be a warrant officer one day. And I had this path in mind. And within a month or two of being at my first duty station, it was like, I, I want out. I don't want to be here anymore. I want to get the hell away from these people. And over mm. time, I met people that helped me get through it. But I had to stay quiet for that entire time I was in. I went four years active and never talked about it. And then I did two years reserves, still didn't talk about it because that was basically like being around civilians. So it's like, why would mm-hmm. you do that? And uh, I was getting over like in trouble there just for bringing motor pool like humor with me. And it was like, okay, I clearly can't talk about anything here. But uh, it took years to finally be like, yes, I was one of those people because I didn't want people to think I was like jumping on the Me Too movement or something. To where it's like, yes. to where it's like, yes. oh, of course you did. Of course you went through that. Who didn't? Right. You know, because it lessens that whole thing, and it's just like, just because I didn't talk about it, doesn't mean that like all of a sudden, I want to share a story just to get some attention. It's that right. I finally came to a point where I realized there's a lot more than just myself that's not speaking up, and yeah, and it's tough because it's not a fun subject at all. And people don't it's speak not. the way you hope they would. <laughs> and I've learned, so I'll just say it. Um, so MST is military sexual trauma. And um, from my understanding, that could be anything from inappropriate sexual harassment during your military service by another service member and or, you know, the most egregious acts of, you know, abuse, sexual abuse. Um, and there's so many people who don't even know what that acronym is, MST. Um, so when you come across somebody that knows what it is, you automatically think, oh my God, they're a survivor. I'm going to have a connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it's always been, um, well, so I was in from 97 to 2003. I must say my first duty station was freaking awesome. Um, It was in Germany. I was 18, young, dumb. What 18-year-old doesn't want to go to Germany and be able to drink? (laughs) So um, 
we had fun. I was in, um, it was a lot of males, but it was, it was a good amount of females. Um, and we deployed to Saudi Arabia. Um, and even though it wasn't talked about because they made it seem like desert storm, desert shield was over, it wasn't over. <clears throat> we were still over there guarding the oil. Yeah. Um, we were, you know, we were over there stirring shit, um, burn pits. Um, and I, I really enjoyed my first unit, no matter the, the things that went on during that time. It was my second unit. I came pregnant, seven months pregnant to that unit. And, um, within the first two weeks, lo and behold, my new platoon sergeant was my baby's dad. Not really, but this was the rumor that was going around. So how do I come from Germany to the States pregnant? And somebody that's been in the States for four years is supposedly my baby's father. <laughs> you know, it was, it was uh, really overwhelming to, to get back to the States. And um, after being gone from the States and technology took over, cell phones were, you know, a thing. And um, it was just a lot to absorb. And so to have also that isolation where, you know, it's, it's hard being a pregnant soldier. I mean, you're looked down upon by everybody. I actually had my new first sergeant tell me that the army didn't issue me this pregnancy. Um, and that was my first like slap in the face, you know, yeah. like actually the army kind of did because I'm pregnant from a soldier. So there's that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I've, I've always been kind of a smart ass and I've always been able to kind of laugh at people and, and twist it back at them. Um, and so it seems like I, that it didn't hurt me or, you know, that that comment didn't really pierce me. Um, and I don't know whether it was a good thing or a bad thing that I could laugh it off because sometimes I think that I got more digs thrown at me because I did have tougher skin you know, mm -hmm. or at least I appeared to have tougher skin. Um, so it was my time um, in Fort Lewis, Washington, that um, being a cook, oh, being a cook, being in the army is one thing. Being a female is a, a whole separate thing. But being a female cook in the army, that's like a whole separate entity in its own. We work crazy mad hours. You know, if you guys need to be fed, we're up at three o'clock. You know? oh, I remember I slept next to enough female cooks and they'd be getting up hours before anybody else or they'd be coming back after midnight. And, yes. and so you, they would just, we worked them like, <laughs> yeah, it's exhausting. So, you know, the guys think, oh, well, mealtime 1700. So you guys should be back in your bunk by 1900. No, sometimes we'd be crawling in at, you know, zero one because who do you think cleans up the mess? You know what I mean? Especially on deployments. You don't have, what do you have? You might have KPs that are some I had kid. KP a lot. <laughs> I really respected <laughs> you guys after that. <laughs> but you know, KP, it seemed like not to be mean to anybody, but let's just be honest. It was given to either the broke soldier, you know, that was on crutches or something, um, or a bad soldier that was, you know, facing article 15 or something like that. So unless they really like jived with us, they were jerks to us as KPs because they didn't want to be there, you know? 
Um, and so dishes would take so much longer or, you know, you got the guy that's just a jerk and just doesn't do anything. He just sits there and is like, okay, I got to be here. So I'm just going to sit here and babysit you guys in his mind. That's what he's doing, you know? Um, but the hours were long and it was, it was grueling. And then to be pregnant in the field was, um, well, it was a whole different thing. I think it changed for your guys' era. And I'm glad, you know, I am glad that women like me um, suffered through what we did so that females now can get better treatment because women like me stood up and I went to, um, what is it called? The IG, I think is what it was Inspector called. General. Yeah, um, because I was six months pregnant a cook and if you guys know anything about the cooks we work with jp8 fuel to you know to cook for you guys out in the field um and if regular normal females that are pregnant shouldn't be around regular normal gasoline definitely shouldn't be around jp8 um so you know and we'd be in an mkt which is just a closed in environments and you're getting all those fumes, you know? Um, and then being pregnant and having to wear the gear, obviously I didn't have to wear the rucksack, but just putting the, I don't know if you guys had, um, the L they were called LBEs. Um, that was where you put your ammo and all that stuff, you know, like, um, but it was a belt and I'm pregnant. So I had to wear it above my pregnancy, right underneath my boobs and just look like a jackass and you don't feel like a soldier anymore, you know? Um, And so the comments that came along with that and I'm like, yo, I'm out here with you guys. I'm not the freaking one that's, you know, claiming sick call and sitting in the sick tent. I'm out here with you guys, like cut me a break. Um, And I didn't realize it for many, many, many years that, you know, all that really affected, um, who I later became, you know, whether that was made me stronger or have an attitude to people. It, um, those comments just having to deal with the segregation of one, I'm a female and now I'm a pregnant female, you know, um, it made it very difficult. So what I did to prove myself like a freaking idiot I went uh, to Grafenvir. Have you heard of Grafenvir? No. So they they do cold weather training um, and wartime training. Like so, if anybody went to Kosovo or Bosnia, they probably trained in Grafenvir first. Um, so I went to Grafenvir, six months pregnant, um, sliding on ice. Uh, you know, not telling the chaplain that I slid on ice because I didn't want to be put on profile. I didn't want to be further segregated, you know? And um, so coming to America, I thought that it would be great because I'd be around, I'd be able to talk to my family, you know, in Germany back then we didn't have cell phones. So I very rarely got to talk to my family. Um, So I thought, oh, wow, this is going to be great. You know, I'm going to be around Americans and see everything in America. And, um, I just felt more segregated because Mm -hmm. I was pregnant. And, um, after, um, after I gave birth to my beautiful daughter, she was, um, very sick. She was in the NICU. 
Um, so if anybody has ever gone through sick call, you know that it's like the most ridiculous thing to say, I'm puking my brains out. Can I just stay in my bed for the next day? You know what I mean? No, you have to go to a doctor puking your brains out, prove that you're puking your brains out for them to write you a note to stay home. Yeah. Well, when you're a parent of a sick person and you're the parent and the soldier, you have to take your baby, your infant to sick call. You have to take your infant to the emergency room on a regular basis to go get a freaking note to say, yes, my infant is still in the NICU, fucker. I still get to stay home. Um, so when I finally came home and thank God my daughter got healthy and my mom came and helped me with the whole family care plan, helped me take care of her so I can get back to my duties. Um, I got harassed a lot and, um, that harassment was, you know, based on the fact that I was now a single mom in the military. So technically they had to give me, most soldiers have regular hours, right? When you're, mm -hmm. when you're in, in duty station, you have your regular hours, but cooks never have regular hours. So, um, for them to tell me that they had to give me a schedule that was open the same amount of time that the daycare on base was open, that was a blow to every other cook. They thought I was just like getting away with murder. You know, I didn't have to be there at three o'clock in the morning because the daycare didn't open till 6 a.m. Yeah. You know, I couldn't work past 1800 because daycare closed at 1800. So it was, it was hard and it made it to where, unfortunately, there's always bad people, right? And so um, there was NCOs that used their rank, like, hey, if you want things to be easier, you have to do this. Um, and I wasn't about it, you know? There, there's always those, um, those individuals that, you know, find that complimentary. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't. You know, I didn't, I had my baby and that's all I cared about. You know, um, they saw me as a single female soldier that was harassed and they could protect me and their protection costed, um, sexual favors. Um, and I, I did not partake and I, I then was shunned. So not only am I being shunned because I'm already a single mom in the military, but now I'm being shunned by these NCOs that are supposed to be protecting me because I won't, won't perform sexual favors you won't for play them the being, game. Yeah. Won't play the game, so. NCO. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was, it was tough. And, um, towards the end, um, Oh two, I had just really had enough. And it was getting to be so draining. My daughter was two years old. She was still um, sickly. And uh, I, had, I had already given her to my mom so that I could go on what I'll call a fun deployment. Um, it was a peacekeeping deployment. But I volunteered because it was uh, another female soldier that got tagged to go who didn't have a family care plan in place. And if she told anybody, she would have got kicked out of the military. Mm -hmm. So... I volunteered to go instead of her because I had a strong family care plan. Um, and I was one of three females. Um, so there was 
the female that was a part of the engineer guys, we were an engineer battalion. So she was an engineer. So she got along with the guys real easy because she worked with them hand in hand. Whereas I was always in the dining facilities. So they didn't yeah. see me that often. Um, and then the other female was an officer. So you already know, we didn't really talk. Um, so even though it was supposed to be a fun deployment and, and it had its fun times, it was, uh, it was pretty bad because I had an NCO that came to me and was like, if you want to take a shower in privacy, then you're going to have to give me extra steak. And I'm like, I have to give you extra food for you to protect me from getting raped. Are you kidding me? Like that, that, that seems just ridiculous. We're, we're soldiers. We're supposed to be going and protecting others and we can't even protect ourselves. Um, so by the time I came home from that deployment, I think I was just morally crushed. Um, and I was looking for camaraderie. So yeah. I, I went to people that I had gained camaraderie with in the past. And um, I was an E4. He was an E6. Um, and there was a couple, there was a couple other E4s and E5s. And we all just got together, played spades, you know, talked about stuff. Of course, you drink a little bit here and there. But it was really just getting together. You know what I mean? Shooting the shit. Um, little did I know that just that simple gesture of kindness of shooting the shit with these guys um, would cause me to find myself in a connex with uh, an NCO who... Uh, now that I can think back, I can clearly see that he had everything planned. So he had a cot um, with a pillow and everything already in the connex. Um, and obviously this thing is supposed to be for our storage, for our equipment, right? It's not supposed to be to sleep in or bunk in. Yeah. Um, so I was supposed to be going to the connex with them to help them get some stuff out of there. Um, and it was on a weekend because cooks work every day um and i had i had been you know sexually sexually abused um and the reason why i didn't know that it was rape is because in my memory i couldn't remember saying no i remember not wanting to do it i remember um kind of just blacking it all out like you know he pulled my pants down and I wasn't facing him, so let's just get this over with, you know? Yeah. Let's just get back to work. Um, well, I was in cook whites. Well, we were both in cook whites. So when he dropped my pants onto the Connex floor, my cook whites got completely dirty. Um, so after it was all said and done, the only way that I felt that I can get out of the whole situation was to say, well, my cook whites are dirty, so I have to go home and clean them. And he said, well, since you did such a good job, you can take the rest of the day off. Wow. And uh, I just went home and cried and screamed and for years blamed myself. Um, I felt that that was like a whorish act on my part. Um, and it wasn't until... 
shoot, it wasn't until 2014 that um, I was going through my medical records and I saw the letters MST. And uh, I asked my counselor what that meant. And he said, military sexual trauma. I've been waiting for you to get to the point where you can talk about that. And I said, well, I didn't have that. Never had any military sexual trauma. What's that mean? And he said, and he explained, you know, it could be harassment or rape. And I said, oh, okay, well, maybe the harassment part, but definitely never raped, you know. And um, he looked at me and he said, are you sure about that? And uh, I didn't know how to take it. I didn't know whether it was okay at that point to open up. And I just sat there and he read my body language. Of course, you know, I was crisscrossed, kind of more tense, you know. Yeah. And um, shaking a little bit, you know, like your knee shakes. And um, he told me, he said, I want you to understand that if you were a soldier, an E4, and this person was an NCO, let's think about the age difference there, first of all. And so we, we spoke about that for a little bit. You know, I was 21. The guy was almost 40. So obviously there's, you know, vast difference in, in brain activity and knowledge at that point. And he explained all that to me. And then he explained the fact that, you know, he was an NCO. His charge was to protect soldiers, to take care of soldiers, to nurture soldiers. Um, so the fact that he used his rank um, and authority to perform a sexual activity made it rape. Um, it took me one whole year of him talking to me every single week and saying the word rape every single week before I could tell anybody else. Yeah, I think for me, because I went, I started going to the VA back in 2015. I saw a therapist from the get-go because I started talking pretty close to when I was getting out of active duty because I started to decide what matters, getting help now and worrying about what people think or, you know, continue sweeping it under the rug like I have been the past few years. And it got to the point where I realized, well, none of these people are going to be around me as soon as I get out of here. So I got to start looking out for myself. So I started talking to a psychologist, continued that going into the VA system, never spoke MST until 2019 to a therapist. And, wow. and what happened was I brought it up and I finally let it out and it took going through domestic violence and all this other stuff. Because even with that, I didn't think I'd ever been abused, even though I had, yeah. had all these I had police reports that said I was a victim of domestic battery. I had all these things, but it was like, well, no, I probably deserved it. So I, right. I always had an excuse. And mm -hmm. then I finally understood that, okay, MST is harassment and all these other things. And I'd had both. And so it was like, so I had to kind of come to terms with that. And I brought it up to a VA psychologist and her response was, you know, how were you raised? Like, were your parents kind? And I was like, yes, they taught me a lot of kindness and empathy. And she's like, well, that's the problem. You're too nice. And I was like, so I'm, so I deserve it. It's like, that's what you're telling me is right. that because I was yeah. too nice. It's okay that this happened to me because I'm not a fighter and all this stuff. And, and I never brought it up to people that I met or other soldiers because uh, there was a lot of shame 
tied to it and not knowing if it was my fault and civilians had this idea of well you're a soldier why didn't you fix it aren't you Mm -hmm. trained to do that and it's just like Mm -hmm. like domestic violence how did that how did you allow that to happen to you Mm -hmm. you know and so it becomes this whole story of well shouldn't you have known and it's like well i was 22 and i got insured i was a little bit older than the average soldier joining but i was still naive and Mm -hmm. Uh, and you kind of, especially for me, like I said, mine happened very early on. And I had just left basic and AIT where it's all this team building and everybody's a buddy and here's your oath and you're here to protect. I didn't mm-hmm. think the person next to me that had the same flag on their shoulder, the same uniform was going to be my enemy because no one right. taught me how to fight against the people that were to my left and right. I was told That's they right. were my friends and they were yeah. my family. And mm-hmm. so when that happened, it was like, well, shit, now I have to kind of look at everybody as, you know, possibly an enemy. And then you get over to like a deployment where you're kind of hanging out with your ass in the wind, like you're kind of by yourself. Uh And uh, I was in a maintenance platoon. So it was just me and one other female. And we always had different guard shifts. So one of us would be at the motor pool, one would be off somewhere else. So it wasn't like we could walk together. Like you were always by yourself. Absolutely. when you come back and people, when you talk about things like anxiety, I was diagnosed with GAD, which is generalized anxiety disorder when I was in the military. And they're like, well, you know, you must have been, you went to a combat zone, you probably saw some crazy shit. And it's always the actual like combat stuff people go back to. And no one realizes like, there's a lot of stress and anxiety of worrying about who you're around. There's a lot of stress being around local nationals that you know, I was part of FET, the female engagement team, and you're taught, like, these people hate women. So you're Mm -hmm. walking around without your face covered, and these guys are looking at you like you're in your PTs, showing your ankles, and that's like, you know, you're a piece of shit. And and so there was a lot of stuff, and people never realize, like, you can come back from a deployment messed up from the stress or things like MST happening. Like, there's so many things that can happen to you other to than have war. stuff like PTSD occur. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I always tell people to check out the book by Kevin Seitz, The Things They Cannot Say, because he talks about how PTSD isn't necessarily always what happened to you. Sometimes it's what didn't happen to you, or sometimes it's what you couldn't do. You couldn't save somebody's life. You couldn't uh, be there when your buddy was on a convoy or something like that. Sometimes it's just right. the thought of knowing you weren't there to stop it. And you had an opportunity or you switch guard shifts with somebody that ended up getting killed. Like there's so much stuff. Mm-hmm. And since everybody's so different, everybody processes stuff different. Absolutely. So it's kind of like the quarantine. Some people are doing really good. Some people are really struggling with it. Like everybody just processes life. Things. Yes, absolutely. The thing that the thing that people need to understand is that, you know we're all humans. So even though we're soldiers, we were first raised by a regular civilian family for the most part. I mean, obviously there's your military brats, but for the most part, most of us are just raised by regular civilian families. And then you go to the military and I don't know very many people in my era that joined saying, I want to go to war, you know? Um, it was more selfish reasons like, you know, uh, for me, I, I didn't have, my family didn't have money for college. Um, and I lived in a very rough city where 
kids didn't see 21, you know? Um, so for me, it was like a way out, a way, a way to get college money, a way to get out of this freaking wretched city, you know? Um, and now that I have, so I guess I should say I was also a recruiter as a civilian. Um, when you guys all went off to war, uh, they, they needed all the civilians to come in. So it was all the ex-military. They hired us to be recruiters to, we needed more people to join. Right. Um, so it wasn't until then that I realized that we really take like criminals. We really take, you know, people that during wartime, I'll say that during wartime, all military takes some of the worst people. Go to um, army or go to jail was pretty. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, and so to think that, you know, myself as a recruiter, I helped a couple of kids that, you know, had uh, theft and um, car theft and different things like that. And, um, you know, you do all the paperwork for a waiver. Well, there's plenty of people that got waivers for, you know, other types of crimes. Um, just because they put the uniform on doesn't mean they're not still that criminal, you yeah. know? Um, so you can, you can change their clothes, you can change their look, but you can't change what's inside of them, you know? And so I think that's what people don't understand that we're all human. So there's rapists in the real world. Well, guess what? There's rapists in the military, you know, there's pedophiles in the real world. There's pedophiles in the military. Oh yeah. You know? We had, we had plenty of those get busted when we were in. It's just like, you never know who's standing next to you. It's you don't. You same really as like don't. standing formation is the same as standing next to someone in the grocery line. You have no idea sometimes who that person is behind closed doors, out of sight. Uh, you just. You don't, you have no idea. And so when I, so I never reported that I was raped. Um, I did report that to my platoon sergeant who I was pretty close with, um, he was uh, friends, I guess you want to say, with that E6 that did me harm. Um, so I went to him at first thinking, hey, can you tell him to never approach me like that again? Can you tell me that can you tell him that that was like a horrible thing? Um, you know, I just want to be able to go to work and him not look at me like I'm a piece of meat, you know? And um, so my NCO attempted to do the correct thing and report it higher. I think that he knew. He actually, um, I looked at him like a fatherly figure. He was the same age as my dad. Um, so he knew what happened was wrong. And, and he knew that there was a name for it you know, and that that name was rape. Um, because as an NCO, you're sworn, you know, yeah. to protect your soldiers. So he, he went to higher command um, and I got called in and um, higher command, and I won't say ranks, but it was higher than E7s. And they drilled me as if I was the one that did something wrong. Why were you in the connex with them? why were you this? What, you know, why did you go home? Why, why were you allowed to stay home for the rest of the day? Um, and it scared me so much that it was like, 
I'm, I'm never, I'm never going to tell anybody this guy's name. He had so many connections, you know, in, in places that, um, were just baffling, you know, that high up officers could just brush it under the rug. Like you shouldn't have gone to the Connex. It was your fault for being there. Mm-hmm. It was my fault for taking an order from an NCO to unload in a Connex, you know? Um, oh, well, he let you go home for the rest of the day to gather, you know, to gather yourself. So he did everything right. By what standard, you know? Yeah. Um, so that, that shut me down. And um, at that point, I was ready to get out. I had already been fighting um, the medical board to stay in. Um, and I just gave up fighting. I did. Uh, you know, I actually had a signed letter from the Sergeant Major of Fort Bliss. He was going to accept me into their, um, I don't know what you guys call it now. Back then it was called PLDC. Um, it was Those names for you to, change so much. I have no idea what it is. Oh, it was um, for you to go from E4 to E5. Um, you had to go, you know, through like a month long training process or whatever. It was like WLC um, or something now. I can't. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. You're right. Warrior leader course. That is what it's called now. So, um, I got accepted with, you know, my profile. So I had injured myself. Um, I had actually fractured my hip earlier on in my time in service and it took a toll on my body, obviously after I had a child. So um, I couldn't carry um, a heavy, heavy rucksack. Um, well, you guys don't even have, they now don't even have the rucksacks that they had back then. Um, so I wouldn't have got chaptered out. But anyways, I had an acceptance letter from the sergeant major, um, the commandant or whatever from the PLDC unit saying we accept her and she doesn't have to be med boarded. And, uh, my, the same NCO that I said was, you know, my father's age came to me to tell me good news. And I told him, I'm done. I'm done fighting. I'm done trying to prove myself. Um, I feel like if I go to the school and I get the rank, nobody's going to respect me because they're going to say that I fucked my way to that rank. Um, and I knew that I couldn't handle that ridicule. So, um, I went ahead with the med board process and got out and never talked about it. Like I said, for all those years, I got out in 2003. I didn't talk about it till 2014. Um, and, uh, it's been quite the healing process. It took, you know, I was going, I think a lot of people go monthly to counseling. I was going weekly to individual counseling because my counselor was so afraid at that point in our sessions to let me go even two weeks without talking to me, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was, it was definitely eye-opening. And now I have, um, my stepdaughter is in the service she joined the army and she's over there in Africa. And I made sure that she had all of my knowledge that this is not how NCOs are supposed to behave. You know, um, she's a beautiful young lady too. And I didn't want her to be like thinking, oh, he's so hot and he's high rank. So yes, you know, no, it's the worst decision. 
Yeah. You know, um, so, you know, when people say, I'm so sorry that that happened to you, I mean, of course I accept that they say that, but I don't know. I, I would take it all over again, as horrible as the events may have been, because I'm able to help others for that to not happen to them. You know, that's how that's, I feel. Yeah. That's what I've always told people when they say stuff about the things I talk about in the military or the domestic violence. It's always that I'm sorry it happened. It's like, well, now I've grown from it. I know I'm stronger. And instead of sitting here and thinking about it, I'm going to use what I've learned to save someone else from going through that because it makes the pain I've endured where it's not like it wasn't worth anything. It's a, you have to Absolutely. turn it into something. And so uh, it's always a matter of like, do you let it knock you down to the dirt and keep you there? Or do you get yourself back up and make sure someone else doesn't get knocked down or you help them out of the dirt? Like there's a lot Absolutely. you can do with it. Absolutely. But. So I was a GS employee and um, because I was uh, a veteran, I was able to, they had me basically give classes. And I'd give classes to the new uh, E5s and E6s that were going to be given soldiers. And I made sure, and this was before I even went to counseling, but I made sure that they understood their position is a position of trust. And... I compared it to that of a college professor with a college student, right? So we're all legal age. So there is no, you know, rape by a child or anything like that. Yes, we're all of consenting age, but a professor is in a position of trust. He is not supposed to have any type of sexual activity with his students. Mm -hmm. Well, neither should you, non-commissioned officer. You are a professor in the United States Army and your students are your soldiers, you know, and that's, that's the kind of mind frame that I was in. And I wanted to make sure as many NCOs as I could understood that, because I think that when we teach them when they're beginning the process, that it's wrong, then they won't have these excuses later on as to they weren't taught. They weren't told that was wrong. I thought she I didn't know any it. better. <laughs> yeah, she didn't say no. You know, yeah. um, so I, I don't think I would have given those classes had that experience not happened to me, you know? So although I don't thank God that the experience happened to me, I thank God that I was able to help others, you know? So we're at, we've already hit our hour. Is there any advice you would like to give to maybe women that are thinking about joining the service? Wow, that is an excellent question. I would just say, be who you are. If you are strong and beautiful and um, sexy, be that. Be that in uniform and be proud of that. And don't let anybody take that from you. And don't segregate yourself. You be just as part of the team as any other person. Awesome. So if people want to reach out to you, where could they, where could they find you? So anybody can email me at plantsforvets at gmail.com or I'm on Instagram, um, plantsforvets. And that's my goal is to help other veterans. All right. Well, thanks for coming on here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was great. Thanks. Right, have a good one. <laughs> 
thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more episodes from Cruise Corner, make sure to subscribe. You can listen to episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or check us out on our very own CruiseCast located on the Cruise Corner website at www.cruisecorner.com. If you would like to be featured on a future episode, please contact us on our website or send us a DM on Instagram.